the book of Titus, we're starting a new series together uh, today called Planted. And um, this is an, an important uh, book for us. And I, I'm excited to be able to go through this because of where we are in our church's history. And by the way, uh, if, as you're turning the book of Titus, I think it's important to know if you're, if you're uh, just now getting into the Bible, studying the Bible, learning about the Bible, I think it's important to know your Bible is not put together in chronological order. So if you pick this thing up and you're like, I'm going to read through the Bible because I've never read through the Bible, you're going to find out these stories bounce around frequently between book to book because your Bible is not put together chronologically. Your, your Bible is actually uh, put together categorically according to literary genre. So when you look at the New Testament, I'll tell you how they put this complex thing together here is they put the four gospels in the front because they're gospels, literary genre, the book of Acts, which is a historical book is next. And then they put the epistles after that. And the epistles, they categorize by the size. Like you look at the next 13 letters after Acts are Paul's epistles. And if you wonder how they put Paul's epistles in the Bible, biggest to littlest, that's it. It has nothing to do with when it was written. It's biggest to littlest. That's why Romans is first, right? And so you're looking at uh, Timothy and Titus here at the end, which we're going to read together. And then Philemon, the little, the little dinky book that you can, if you ever want to check something off the to-do list, read Philemon and feel good about yourself. I read a book of the Bible, right? So a uh, really short book. And then they add the epistles, uh, the remaining epistles uh, to the end of that. And then the book of Revelation, which if you ever read that, good, good luck. It's a good, good Halloween themed book to read, right? <laughs> a lot of crazy things happen in, in Revelation, but that's how your Bible is put together in according to categories. Titus is a unique book. The uh, Timothy and Titus, these, these three books here towards the end of Paul's letters, are considered pastoral epistles. And I think they're really church planting epistles. Uh, Paul works with a team to plant churches around the world, proclaiming the gospel, making disciples for Jesus. And when they're going to these cities and towns and they're seeing churches established, they're talking about healthy church. How can we have healthy church? And this is a book that very much relates to where we are as a church. How can we be a healthy church? We are a church plant in in a valley where we desire not to just uh, survive, but to thrive, to be healthy, to multiply, to make a difference, to impact lives. And so just as Paul writes this book to to Titus to make a difference, so we can relate what this, this letter is about in this first century to where we are today. And and I love how... um, Morning worship began as we dive into this book because um, this very much relates to where I want to go for us as a church family. You know, when you think about planting a church, there's lots of different church plants with lots of different styles and approaches to how they begin. Um, but you know, one of the things that I just want to be cautious about in how we build our church is what you win people with is what you win them to. Does that make sense? So. Some, there is some danger in the way sometimes we approach church planting with that sort of perspective. What you win, what you win people with is what you win them to. And, and, and some churches um, get into certain patterns of doing things that may be good for the moment, but I don't always think it's sustainable for the future. And one of the things I've really appreciated about ABC uh, is that our, our history as a church is we've grown by about 10% every year since we started. That's a, that's a healthy growth rate. And, and while I think it's important to be relevant, it's important to be relevant where your culture is. I don't think we always have to dive into being trendy because trendy can get exhausting. 
As fast as, fast as culture moves today, I would say, especially today, Trinity King. Now, it, it's important to, to try to be relevant with the culture because I think the culture creates the platform to share the gospel. But the church isn't called to be Trinity. It doesn't have to match the culture in every way. But it does need to understand the culture where it's at in order to relate to the people. And so while it's always important to be relevant, we don't have to be Trinity. What you win people with is what you win them to. And here's what we want to win people to. Jesus, right? I mean, this, the simplicity of our church should be about this. We want to love God, love, love people. I think Jesus called the, perp- the purpose for which his church exists is to make disciples. We want to see people be, to be genuine followers of Jesus, where Jesus transforms their life. And in transforming their lives, it transforms their relationships for Christ. And we say it very simplistic. We want you to experience a transformation in Jesus that transforms your relationships for Jesus. And, and, and just having the simplicity of a guitar this morning and singing, that is some of my favorite worship, where it's just one musical instrument, God's people, their voices lifting in worship to God, a beautiful thing. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be all the additional things. It can be, because I think music speaks to the heart, and people like that stuff, right? But it's really about where your heart is in Jesus. And the interest of our heart is about reaching people and where their heart is as it relates to Jesus. And when you consider the book of of Titus, that's, that's what Paul is interested in, in, in writing this letter. He, Paul is writing this letter to Titus as Titus is sending, sent to the place of Crete in order to see a church that's sustaining. And, and when we think about our church here, we are a church plant and we want to become sustaining and, and not just be about us. Not just about this, this place and our people, but, but we are not, we're not just our kingdom focus, but really his kingdom focus. And how what God does here can multiply beyond us throughout this valley and seeing churches uh, thriving. And so Paul talks about this with, with, uh, with Titus in, in discussing what a healthy church looks like. And, and let me just say this in, in the most simplistic form. We think about church. I'm not... I'm not talking about building. I'm talking about me and you. We are the church. And the health of the church is determined by the health of the individual that makes up the church. And so the big question is, where is your heart? Where is mine before God? And so when Paul starts off this letter, I love the beginning of this because he starts with the foundation of of the way the church is leading itself. And he begins by using his own life as the primary example. And so what we're going to look at is how Paul views himself. We think about a church thriving in this valley and, 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 and the church in Crete thriving as Paul communicates it. He, he starts by using himself as an example. How did Paul view himself? How did Paul view his, his God? And how, how did Paul view ministry? So we're just going to talk about those three things when it relates to healthy church in the first five verses of this book. We're going to spend five weeks in this book. And as we look at how Paul describes how a church plant first century should look. We're going to relate this to our church and what God desires for us because we want to run and thrive in our relationship with Jesus as his community and how God can call us to make an impact in in this valley. So how does Paul view himself? He he uses himself here as, as the primary example. He says this, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. 
So Paul begins his identity as it relates to church by, by connecting it to himself and, and his position in the church. And I, I love what he does. He, he takes these two thoughts as it relates to him and the way he does ministry. He says, like I have the identity of, of apostle and bondservant. And I love when, when Paul is, is sharing who he is as he writes this letter to Titus, the people of Crete, he begins his identity not with apostle, like people that want to just put the trump card forward would start there, like look at me and my authority. But Paul, Paul rather lowers himself in this positional understanding of that, that before anything else, what he is as it relates to God is a bondservant. God's leaders are never above a, a plunger and a broom. <laughs> you know, when I uh, graduated from a, a Bible college, one of the ceremonies they have at the, end of the, at the end of the service when you receive your diploma is they give everyone a towel. <laughs> and it's to remind you that the, the purpose of, of ministry is about serving. And the thing that your Savior, the one that you pursue in life, was all about at the end of his life was taking the lowest position of a servant and washing the feet of his disciples. And he is the one to be modeled, right? And so Paul calls himself uh, to, 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 to this position, just like his Savior, just like his Lord and God, that he himself is also a bondservant. What exactly is a bondservant? It really means slave. A bondservant is a slave. What exactly is Paul trying to get across to us by using these terms? In our culture today, when we think about slavery, we sort of position that word against American history, right? Uh, we look back in the 1800s and we see the, uh, the degrading of, of, of a race of people. And we sort of associate slavery with that identity. But when the Bible talks about slavery, it's not rooted in an American understanding of slavery. In the time of Paul's days, slave, a slave wasn't subject based on race. A slave could have been anybody during this, this, uh, this time period. It wasn't just one particular uh, people group. And, and when you look at this idea of bondservant in Scripture, the Mosaic Law actually allowed indentured servants to become bondservants or slaves. Now, why in the world would someone want to do that, right? An indentured servant was one that owed a certain debt and they would work for someone to pay it off. And they end up paying off that debt when they were finally freed from being that indentured servant. They can make a choice. You can go in your own freedom now or you can become a slave to, to your master. Now, why in the world would you do that? Well, let me give you an example as it relates to our culture today. I think it's completely impossible in in America today to work a job full-time and even beyond that and still not to be able to afford where you live. In the days of indentured servants, your master could do such a good job in providing for you that rather than go out and find a new job, you're like, I got it good where I'm at. I want to belong here. And so they would make themselves a bondservant to that master for their lives because their master treated them so well. They could work their job and still have their home and their family taken care of. Some would even argue that when you compare some of the ways indentured servants were treated to to how we treat people in America, when it's possible to work a full job and still not be able to afford where you live, that you could be worse off than a slave that would be an indentured servant subjecting themselves to a master. It's not the same as American history. 
And we could even look at that and argue for, the, for Paul becoming a bondservant here. That he has found the place for which his life is satisfied. The bondservant gives the idea that you will be mastered and controlled by something. It's impossible not to. You're a being created for worship, and being created for worship, you will look for something to give you worth, value, and meaning. And where you find that, you will make yourself belong to it because it gives you your identity, your sense of satisfaction of of who you are. But the reality is, nothing in life will ultimately satisfy you the way God will. And so seeing that, Paul says that his, his life is mastered and controlled by, by his Lord. You will serve something. What controls you? Bond servants understand we have a purpose bigger than ourselves. And so a, a bond servant is about dying to self in order to, to live out that purpose. Paul was rescued and, and he becomes a servant of God to help others find that rescue in him. And look what it says. A bond servant of God, apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. And so he finds his purpose and his identity as it relates to God in proclaiming this truth which really sets him free as he he surrenders himself to who God is. The church exists for a purpose greater than the individual. It's about, as the second part of verse 1 tells us, it's about multiplication. Our purpose as a church in multiplication, really the, the word is discipleship. And we say this, the purpose of the church, as it relates in verse 1, what Paul is showing us is, is really the, the great commission and the great commandment. I've already told you this. The great commandment and the the great commission. The great commission is to make disciples, go in the world and make disciples. God created the church to make disciples. And the great commandment, love God, love others. God cares about the heart of people. God desires to use you to reach the hearts of people that his glory may be made known. That's why the church exists. And Paul, who once persecuted the church, has now made himself a servant of God. And in serving God, he loves what God loves. And what God loves is the church. It's its bride. And so Paul helps the church become all that it's called to be, which is why he's writing to Titus in this place of Crete. He wants to see them thrive. And now using his life as as his own example, he says this, that my identity first is that I am a bondservant. I am surrendered to this king who gave his life for us that I might give my life in return for him. Maybe even begging the question for, for us. Why do you serve God? Is it because of what you get or because of who he is? Is God your prize? Or do you serve him for another prize? Does that make sense? Because if you pursue God for what you get, the minute you stop getting what you want, guess what you do? You abandon God. Because all he really was was a tool to serve your needs. 
The God in that scenario was really you because you, you just leveraged God as your tool to get what you want because you were making it about yourself. But the call of the Christian life is to see God as the prize. And we do this not even thinking about it theologically as Christians. We talk, about, we talk about heaven in that way. When we think about eternity, we say things like this. Are you going to heaven? Because what makes heaven heaven is God. It is his presence. And so the pursuit of heaven isn't about the place in itself. Because the place apart from God isn't really heaven. God is the prize. And God is the reason for which we do these things. And Paul, when he's saying he's a bondservant, it's not about what he might get from God, but it's because his pursuit is God itself. And so we are called to live for a purpose greater than ourselves. And our purpose is found in that relationship to our Lord. And as we come to love him, we love what he loves. And what we produce ultimately reproduces. Because it's about disciples. See, building a church here, this, this church isn't an end in itself, but rather a means in creating an end, which is further disciples in pursuit of, of Jesus. And living out this great commission and great commandment. And when we look at these two phrases, Paul says one bondservant, which is really what I want us to think about, guys. When it comes to, to Christianity, um, sometimes people wrongly pursue Christ um, for the accolades and titles rather than from just the sheer joy of relationship and loving God. Just, I mean, a, a servant in God's kingdom is greater than any other position anywhere else. And, and you look at these two titles, bond servant and apostle. And I want to talk just a little bit about what apostle represents because <clears throat> I, I think, at least from my theological understanding, I think sometimes there's a little bit of misunderstanding as it relates to these terms. And I, and I want you to know, I'm going to share some theological verses. If you disagree with me, that's okay, don't be angry. Okay, um, But if you disagree with me, find some verses that back up what you disagree with. That's it. But when it comes to apostle, I, I, I would argue as it relates to apostle today, I, I find the position of apostle as something that has passed. So let me give you a few reasons why. Um, in Acts chapter 1, Paul says he's a bondservant here, which we want to emphasize, not, not apostle, but he does have the identity of apostle. In Acts chapter 1, when Judas um, takes his life, the disciples quote from Scripture. And they say, well, the Bible says, quoting from Scripture, if you back up to verse 20, you'll see it. In the Old, in the Old Testament, they say that, they, that it was foretold that they were to replace this person. Acts chapter 1, verse 21. Therefore, it's necessary that if a man who has accompanied us, they're given the qualifications here for an apostle, it was necessary that a man who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until that, the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. <clears throat> so the saying, look, Judas is gone. It's prophesied that we're supposed to have a 12th apostle right now. And so let's, let's appoint one. Here's the qualifications. They had to have done ministry with Jesus and seen the resurrected Christ. One of the reasons I think apostleship isn't something that we pursue today is because the qualification is an impossibility. But, but in Acts chapter 1, they lay out what the qualifications were. Now, when you see that they're picking the 12th apostle here, now that we could very easily say, okay, what about Paul? Where does, where does Paul fit in this? In 1 Corinthians 15, it, it says this about Paul. He's saying uh, that Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles, 
And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles. So Paul's saying, look, when it comes to the apostles, you have the apostles. Jesus appeared to the apostles, and that was the qualifications to be an apostle, as Acts chapter 1 says. But, but God also appeared to me. And this is what gave me the opportunity to be an apostle. But his appearance to me was unique. I mean, this wasn't something that was supposed to continue on. He appeared to me also, and I'm the least of the apostles. I was one that was untimely born. Like, there's the uniqueness of this. So we look at the 12 apostles. The 12 apostles were to the 12 tribes. And, and then Paul was to the Gentiles. He's referred to as the apostle to the Gentiles. And so his uniqueness as it relates to the Gentile world was, was birthed out of this. And when you think about the position of apostle, I just argue with, with the thought of why would you want to be one? Because when you look at what apostles did in scripture, um, apostles weren't people that stood in lofty positions with wealth before crowds. Apostles were ones that went into the most dark places of the world and faced the worst persecution for the proclamation of the gospel. That's biblical apostle in New Testament. Paul, the 12 apostles, when you study the, the apostles of the early church, they, they were severely persecuted. 11 of the 12 lost their lives because of their faith in Jesus. They scattered all over the known world and, and faced heavy persecution and, and difficult martyrdom because of their faith in Christ. And, and Paul himself, one of those. The only one that wasn't martyred was John, and he was exiled on the island of Patmos. He was thrown in a boiling vat at one point. And so they faced tremendous persecution and, and Paul writes about it. In fact, if you read second Corinthians 11, there were people going around calling themselves super apostles. And Paul's like, why are they super apostles? I have more reason to be an apostle than them. And he shares his accolades as being apostle. And look what he says, imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews, 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and a day I spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers of robbers, dangers of countrymen, dangers of Gentiles, dangers in cities, dangers in wilderness, dangers in sea. Dangerous, you get the point, right? Why would you want that? <laughs> Sign me up, right? But when you think about these two positions, the, the purpose in all of this is for us to consider, guys, what God calls all of us to be as servants. I'm leery of people that just want titles, I don't pursue Jesus for titles. Titles are things that might bring clarification later. But we pursue Jesus to serve him and his kingdom. I think if I just gave you some, if you just want to know a few more verses that relates to apostolic authority. Again, this isn't to argue. This is just to challenge us theologically. Um, 2 Corinthians 12, it says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all uh, perseverance by signs, wonders, and miracles. Um, when you read in Acts, it tells us that Peter in chapter 5 performed signs, wonders, and miracles. So much so that people would bring out their sick and their shadows would heal them. Um, Peter's shadow, excuse me, would heal them. And, and I would just say this. The office of apostles affirmed by signs, wonders, and miracles. In, in Peter's day, something unique about his time period is there really weren't any hospitals. People associated physical things that happen to you as spiritual torment from the gods. 
And you had done something wrong to make the gods mad. So if anything physically wrong with you, it was because the gods were angry with you. And in some cultures, they would cast you out in the streets because they didn't want to be caught helping you. Because if they helped you, that could make the gods angry at them too. So hospitals weren't a common practice. It wasn't until about 325 AD that the Christian church started adding um, hospitals to their places of worship to treat people. And so hospitals weren't a regular thing. In fact, if you had anything associated with a hospital, it was more like um, a medicine men where spiritual leaders would come in like medicine men and do spiritual chants over you, hoping that you got better. And so this is what I would say. Anyone that would claim the ability to have sign wonders and miracles, like in Peter's day, Paul's day, they didn't really have hospitals, but if you were to claim to have that, then please go to the hospital. Go heal them, please. We know where they collect, right? And so caring for them becomes becomes important, but here's here's... What, what the early church is taught to do. When you read in the New Testament, you will not find a letter written by Paul or any, any of the early apostles that says, um, look, your church needs more apostles or your church needs certain types of leadership. When, when, when the church established leadership, they, they only had an outline for, for uh, two positions in the church. One was the deacon and the other was an elder. So when the churches are being birthed, like in Crete, you're going to see this next week. When the churches are being birthed, and there's the world, Paul's not writing them, look, you need to appoint apostles. What Paul's writing them to say is, look, you need leadership, and let's call them elders. And so the church wasn't called to appoint apostles, they were called to appoint elders. And it says this in Ephesians chapter 2, just to put it in perspective. You're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So all of us together make up God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So notice in, in the act of tense, we are this right now, we are the saints, we are God's household right now. Having been built on the past foundation of what the apostles and prophets laid out. So I would, I would just say this. I would argue this. If, if God wanted us to continue in these positions, that he would lay out the qualifications for that. But because the Bible is silent laying out the qualifications for us to present these in churches, but rather what God highlights is the elders, what God is interested in is the leadership of the church as it relates to elders. And here's how you find them. They have the heart of a servant. How do they care for others? How do they care for their family? How they minister the hearts around them. The point of all this, guys, is to remind us that how did Paul view himself as it relates to a thriving church? Church is as good as the people that make it up. Where's our heart? Is it about position? It's about service. It's about what we get. It's about who he is. My heart in these moments is about worship. Jesus, you are my king. And, and, and just move on a little bit further past there. Paul not only talks about his identity, but then he talks about his God. It says this, uh, he's a bondservant and apostle of Jesus for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to Godless, and the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. Yeah, I, I think if we believed what this statement was communicating we would live a little more boldly and urgently in our Christian life. Uh, we're talking about in this verse, eternal life, which God who cannot lie gives to you. Um, the death of Jesus, like God becoming flesh and dying for us, 
should communicate the urgency of the human condition. If God is willing to become flesh and die for us, how important it should be for our ears to be attentive to what it is he's accomplishing on our behalf at the cross. It's eternal life. The soul faces eternal death. Death doesn't mean you cease to exist. Death means separation. And what God, in being the king of peace, has brought to us is life, reconciliation, a relationship with him for all of eternity. And he says it this way, that God cannot lie. You ever wonder, maybe, what what would encourage Paul to write this type of statement? God doesn't lie. Maybe it's because the the Cretans where uh, he's writing to, they thought God was a liar based on what they thought about God. You know, when we engage the the world, we find out that, that people tend to have a hate for God, but their hate for God is based on the idea of the God they've conceived within their mind. Doesn't necessitate that it is the real God. Does that make sense? So, so sometimes I'll encounter people and, I, and they'll say to me, I hate God because there's so much evil in the world. Like, well, first of all, where did you get the idea for the basis of determining what's right and wrong? What's evil and what's good? Where do you think that came from? And if you've looked at this world and determined certain things are evil and you hate that, and God would have created you to hate good and e- or, uh, hate evil and love good, maybe, just maybe, that God agrees with you. And so there's a disconnect in their mind. There's evil in this world. I hate evil. God created, so therefore I hate God. But there's a disconnect in their mind in trying to be able to understand how God can be good and yet allow evil in this world. Why is there evil if God is good? The reality is it relates to our death. 2 Peter 3.9, God is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. Our souls are disconnected from God. Our souls are on a path of death apart from Christ. And God allows the world to continue in its, in its trajectory to give us opportunity to turn to him as our king. It's his sustaining grace that allows us to breathe right now. And in his plan of providing grace for you to be able to come to him, God is also going to reconcile every wrong ever done in this world. There will not be a tear that is ever wasted in God's hands. God agrees with you. God hates evil. That is why with such passion, he came in this world as flesh and bone and died on the cross so that he can reconcile those things in him. Your heart agrees with God in hating evil. They don't hate God. They just hate the version of God that they're thinking of. And so they're saying this, God does not lie so that we could see the truth of God and and cling to it. As you pursue God in your life, here's the comfort of this, is that your calling in living for God in this world, your calling is only as capable as the one who calls you. If what you believe in isn't trustworthy, then who cares? You can think it's a bed of roses all day long, but at the end of the day, if it's not dependable, it's not going to hold you. But if God is who he says he is, when he makes a promise, you can walk in that. As it relates to God, what Paul is saying here is, look, God has given you promises because when you live as a church, there's going to be challenges. And in the midst of those challenges, what do you cling to? Do you give into the, the challenge? 
Are you hoping you're God? God can't lie. That makes his promises so precious to us that we would hold on to that and, and pursue him. And when you think about uh, this section of scripture and Paul identifying his calling, he's wrapping his calling as a bondservant in the truth of who God is. When you see anyone doing anything effective for the Lord in his kingdom, it always happens that way. I, I love in Exodus chapter three when Moses is called at the burning bush. God calls Moses, Moses comes to God in Exodus chapter three, verse 11, and God tells him what he wants him to do. And Moses asks this question. He says, who am I? Who am I that I'm gonna do this, God? Verse 11. You know how God answers this question? With a question. Moses says, isn't, who are you? The question is really, who am I? Because everything that God calls Moses to do isn't based on Moses' strength. It's based on his. And that's when God says, tell him, I am has sent you, Yahweh. And we have the first declaration of scripture in the name of God. But when you follow that theme in scripture, you see that calling on anyone that does anything for the Lord. David was passed over because he was a little servant boy. He was the least of his brothers, the last brother in line. Isaiah, he comes before God in Isaiah chapter 6. And what does he see? He sees the the angels in heaven surrounded through the throne of God as, as it thunders. And the angel comes down and touches Isaiah's lips for the declaration of the message of God. And based on God's authority, he says, here am I, send me. It's not about you. It's about him. It's how, how Paul views himself in light of who God is. And so how Paul views his God. And, and, the, and the third is this. How does Paul view his ministry? Look in verse 4 and 5. To Titus, he finally shares with us where he's sending this. To Titus, my true child. I should probably read verse 3. Let me read this for you. But at the proper time manifested even his word and the proclamation which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. So Paul has given this message to share, he's saying. And then he shares this with Titus. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. How does Paul view his ministry? So you see in these verses, he, he, he's seeing this message God's given him, and now he's sharing it with Titus, and he's thinking about, in verse 5, Crete, the church that's in Crete. And so how does Paul view his ministry? When I use the word ministry, or when any of us use the word ministry, uh, you know, I, I always hesitate in saying this, because I want us to understand, when we say ministry, the focus of ministry is people. The primary goal of ministry is not tasks. The goal of ministry is people. The reason ministry exists is to reach hearts. If there are no hearts to reach, there is no ministry to be had. The goal of ministry is people. It's not about accomplishing tasks. Sometimes when you hear people talk about their calling, they'll, they'll look at it with dread, like you've got to get there and do your job because you've been assigned to do your job. If you ever view ministry that way, just take a pause in your heart, okay? Because that's not what ministry is created for. God gives you a place to serve in order to leverage a position to minister to a heart. The goal of ministry is about a heart. And so when Paul's thinking about ministry, he's not thinking about, let's build a church here. Let's see a building erected and let's just 
create this structure, guys. No, he, what he's thinking about is people. He's thinking about the hearts of Crete, and he's thinking about those he does ministry with in order to reach the, the people in Crete. So he's writing this letter to Titus. He cares about those he serves alongside and those he is serving with together in order to reach those, that place. So he's serving with people concerned about their hearts, and he's serving with these people to reach people concerned about their hearts. And so he checks with Titus, his teammate. And I love the way Paul refers to him. He he talks about a a, a child, a spiritual child. He's got this relationship to him where I think Paul led Titus to the Lord. So his true child and the common faith, what unites them is this faith. It's not their faith personally, but the faith of Christianity. And so he, he finds this relationship where he's this spiritual mentor, the, father, the, the, the one who led uh, Titus to the Lord. He's a spiritual child under, under Paul's wing in which he's mentoring him because Paul in ministry is concerned for his heart. That's what ministry is about. A concern for hearts, not accomplishing tasks. Titus, you see in New Testament, is mentioned 13 times. He went with Paul as Paul did, conducted his ministry uh, journeys. And Paul sent Titus to Crete. A few reasons I think Paul sent Titus. Crete was a Gentile area and Titus was a Gentile. Unique to Paul's ministry. A lot of Jews working with Paul, but here Paul has a a Gentile working with him. And Crete was a tough area. And, And Titus was a tough guy. Paul had problems in Corinth. He didn't send Timothy. Timothy was too nice. <laughs> he sent Titus. He thinks about Crete. Crete's a Gentile area. Crete's a, a tough area. And, and, and Paul sends Titus. I think Paul also sent Titus to Crete because Titus understood the culture better than anyone and could minister to it. Context matters. Being relevant matters. The culture around you matters. Culture creates the context to share the gospel. Where is the need and where you live? How can we leverage the gospel to speak into the hearts of people? If you care about the people, you'll care about what they care about. You'll know them. And you'll love them. Titus understood Gentiles. Titus understood rough. Titus understood this context. In fact, in Titus chapter 1, verse 12, it says this. One of their own, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. <laughs> what a place, right? Buy me some real estate. We're going to call it a vacation home. <laughs> but you know, this, this place was known as a home for mercenaries, for hire. The streets were unsafe. It was a place of no accountability, really. It's one of those, it's probably where the slogan was adopted, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Crete was was one of those places. But at the same time, it was ripe for the gospel because it was a place where spiritual battle was happening. In that darkness, you could see the apparent need for Jesus to be made known in the hearts of the people. And so Paul sent Titus to establish a church would make disciples and reach the world. Paul knew in order to live out the calling and to make disciples, he could not do this alone. We need each other. We need each other to do what God has called us to do. Paul worked with a team to do that. And he says to to Titus, verse five, that he would set things in order 
and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Find leaders that care to make a difference and set these things in order. Find out where the need is in the gospel and help people pursue that. Set these things in order and and, and establish leadership. Guys, as a church, we consider our area to set these things in order. And just ask the question, where is the need for the gospel in our midst, in our communities? We all need a burden for which to care and a purpose for which to live. To be a, a thriving church, you think in this context of verse four and five, it, it's not about ministry to accomplish a task, but to care for the people around us. What Paul is saying in this passage is, A thriving church needs true servants of the Lord, helping God's people mature, believing in God's promises, faithful in verse three to what God has entrusted us, striving as a team concerned for the gospel need in their area. To think about our ministry, our purpose. I think about an effective church. My mind thinks of three areas. What's the purpose? We don't have church just to have church. Places may do that, but we don't show up on Sunday just to show up on Sunday. Let other people do that. I don't want to do that. I didn't move my family across the country to live for that reason. I want to make a difference, right? What's the purpose for our existence? The Great Commission, Great Commandment. Make disciples, love God, love people. And what's the need? The context of the culture creates the platform to leverage the gospel. What's what's the need in our area for which we could speak the truth of of Christ that sets us free? Where does darkness pervade in the lives of people where the gospel and the light of the gospel can make a difference in their hearts? How can I share that truth with them? uh, For years I've thought about this in our context and I, I finally brought it down to one word and I think I've shared with you before. I think the most powerful need in our valley, and it may surprise you if you've not heard, but I think it's loneliness. I think people today are lonely. And you look at that, you think, okay, how is that a gospel need? Well, let, me, let me tell you why. Um, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve first sinned, what did they do? They ran and they hid, Right? They ran and they hid and they clothed themselves. Here they had this naked world to run free in, and now all of a sudden they got to wear them clothes, right? Um, but, but, but they run and they hide. And what, what it's communicating for us there is that as soon as sin in the world, what followed was separation, loneliness. They didn't know what to do with their sin. It separated them from one another. It separated them from God. I think today we still fight that battle. We're the most connected as any generation of people could have ever been. And still loneliness is one of the deepest needs in, in our, the core of us as human beings. More so, I think, than ever before. So busy, we don't have the depth of relationship that our soul longs for, and definitely not with our God. What do we do with our sin? How do we connect to people? And the gospel invites us in. 
To show us a God that has pursued us in the midst of our sin that separates us from him. A God that desires to know you and to allow you to enjoy all of eternity with him. A place where in your brokenness you can come and you can just be transparent with your failures because God is the one that heals. You don't have to pretend. Just bring yourself before the cross. That's what this church is, a place of imperfect people gathering together to find our identity in Jesus because our worth, value, meaning is is really not designed to be discovered in anywhere else other than in him and for him to make us new. And that's how we live our mission. In the midst of loneliness, here's what we desire. For people to experience a transforming relationship in Jesus that transforms their relationships for Jesus. That that loneliness our soul aches over would be destroyed in Christ. And that there would be birthed in Jesus a community of people that care and love one another no matter where we come from. When we live in that reality, God brings life in him through us to reach this world. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.